We're in 1 Samuel, continuing our series through the book of Samuel. And we're going to be looking at chapter 2, beginning in verse 12 of 1 Samuel. So recall, we began uh, with this family, this family, then Rama, mother and father of Samuel. And we get Hannah's vow that she will dedicate this child to the Lord, if the Lord would so bless her, and he does. Last week we saw her song of thanksgiving, her song of adoration and praise for Yahweh and his work in her life. And this week we're looking at Eli's sons. Eli's worthless sons. We have a lot to cover this this morning, so I'm just going to go ahead and jump right in. It's a longer text. We're going through all the way to the end of chapter 2. So you can remain seated. As I read God's word, this is God's holy word. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. And this was what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Well, let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So Then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were there serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man from, of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then? Do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? 
Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then in distress... You will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Amen. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Lord in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Long passage this morning, but a lot to talk about, a lot to unpack. Every human priest, pastor, leader, will fail us in some regard. There are leaders who are better than others, and not all leaders are as corrupt as the sons of Eli that we read about here, but all leaders will fall short of the true priest who came in the womb of the Virgin Mary. All leaders will fail. And so as we turn back to the Old Testament, as believers in Christ, as as New Testament, Christ has come, We are believers in him. His promises have been fulfilled in Christ. We await his return. Why do we still read the Old Testament? Why are you here this morning on a Sunday? It's a weekend. Uh, You could be playing golf, right? You could be going to the movies, but you're here reading this text from the Old Testament. Why? Why? Why are we studying this? It's good to remind ourselves that the entire Bible is one story. It's one entire story. Of course, it's got many episodes, right? It's got many seasons, if you think of it like a a TV show. But this story is a part of one great story of God's grace and points forward to the coming prophet, priest, and king who saves his people and gives us hope. So we ask ourselves, where is our hope this morning? Well, if you look at the text, it's in this coming priest. It's in this coming one who is better than Eli's son, who's better than Eli, and who gives us hope. And so the main idea this morning is that while God's judgment is swift and comes quickly, His grace is slow and steady and reliable. Therefore, we can rest in His promise to purify and build His church. That God is working even when His leaders are failing, even when they're immoral. He's still working. We're going to look at this text in in three different ways. overarching themes. The first one is, we're going to look at the sins of our sons. 
This intergenerational sin from Eli to his son. Secondly, we're going to look at the swift hand of judgment. And thirdly, we're going to look at the slow and steady hand of grace. So first, the sins of our sons. Beginning at verse 12, we read this, that the sons of Eli were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. That sort of tells you everything you need to know about these men, right? They were worthless men. And they didn't know the Lord. What does that mean, to, to not know the Lord? Well, in, in Hebrew, in, in the Old Testament, to know someone is to have this intimate, close, relational knowledge that involves action, to know them. It's why it's used with a husband and, and a wife in marital relations, that Abraham knew his wife Sarah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. It's this deep, intimate, relational word. And God applies it to himself, that, that these priests who should have known God did not didn't know him at all. They had no knowledge of him, which also meant they had no fear of him. The very people who should have had the most knowledge and the most fear of the Lord had, had none. Had none. And therefore, their actions and the fruit of their lives shouldn't really surprise us. If, if one doesn't know the Lord, then they won't have actions that look like they have relationship with the Lord. But can, compare them to Samuel. Look at verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Look at those words, ministering. He was, he was in the action of serving God. Minister just really means, when you call someone a pastor or a minister, it really means to serve, a servant. He was serving the Lord. But also look at that phrase, before the Lord. Before, meaning all, when we say that we are before God or, or before the Lord, that we are saying He is looking at everything we're doing and viewing it. If you live your life without thinking that you are before the Lord, you will live however you want. But if you know the Lord is ever-present with you, that should affect the way we live. That should affect the way we uh, carry on our lives. If he's watching, if we're before his face. And so Samuel is actually serving before the Lord. He sees the Lord's watching him All of life, all of his life, is lived with the knowledge of God's presence. If you live your life with the knowledge of God's presence in your life, that will change how you live. It should. Well, as we get through this first passage up to verse 17, we get this phrase that they were treating the offering of the Lord. These priests were treating the offering of the Lord with contempt. With contempt. What does that mean? Contempt really means that you're treating something as unworthy. It's below you. You don't care about it at all. And so what were they doing that was so bad, beginning in verse 13 and following? Well, it says this, The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man would offer sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the kettle or pot, and then all the fork that brought up the priest would take for himself, and this is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So they had this practice. This wasn't really this wasn't in the law. This wasn't required by God. 
But this is the practice at Shiloh that, that Hophni and Phinehas would send their servant to go to the, to the offerer of, of, of uh, their, their sacrifice and go into their kettle. So what they would, they would do, they would offer their sacrifice and then they would have a meal afterwards, right? a post-sacrificial meal. And so here you have the servant of the priest taking food, literally, from these people who are enjoying this meal. When already God prescribed in Leviticus that the priest should have the breast of, this, of the animal and the right leg. So here they are taking more than was required by the law. But not only that, they're doing this in verse 15. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast. He will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the, guy, if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, then, I'll, then you can take as much as you would wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. If not, I will take it by force. So what was also required in the law was that the fat should be burned. The fat was the Lord's, not, not the man's or woman's. It was the Lord's. They shouldn't be eating the fat. But what the priest is demanding is that they have the raw meat with the fat and they cook it for themselves. David Samura, a commentator, says, These young men treated it not with sober respect or sacred awe, but with contempt, as if they resented both their dependence on offerings for food and the religious rigmarole that went with it. You see, the priests were dependent upon the people for food. Right? They, didn't, they didn't get an inheritance. They weren't, uh, this was the only way that they were provided, and they were taking more, and they were taking more, and they didn't care about God's offerings. And as we translate this into worship, I mean, this is a worship context, right? This, God cares about the details of how we're to worship. And as we come into worship week by week, we need to ask ourselves, do we hold worship into contempt? Are we bored with it? Is it unimportant to us? Is it a hindrance to your weekend to come worship the Lord? Or does everything in your week lead up to worship? That is this pinnacle of your week that you get to come before the Lord with his people and worship him. Is it a hindrance? Or does everything lead up to it? And our church leaders, and as I was reading and studying for this text this morning, um, I have to apply it to myself first and foremost, because these are church leaders. And are leaders in the church held to a higher standard and greater consequences regarding this? Absolutely. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, for you know that We who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You shouldn't wish to become a teacher flippantly because you'll be judged with greater strictness. And you know, I could have, in preparing for this sermon, filled a whole hour filled with stories of pastors who have fallen and who have committed sins and who have been disqualified from the office. I feel like we hear about this more and more and more. But it's not a, a new problem. It's an old problem. And, and what we see in this text is that this is the issue they're dealing with here in Israel. But not only were they misusing the offerings, they were incorporating pagan sexual sin as well. Look at verse 22. Now Eli, the father of the priest, was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. They were sleeping with the women who were serving there at the tabernacle. Now, this would have been actually typical 
and Canaanite worship and pagan worship with the temple prostitution. But this was obviously prohibited in God's law. But this shows the syncretism, right? the, the adoption of the practices of the nations around, around Israel. So they were in a bad state. The, the temple, the worship is in a bad state. And as we think about Eli, this priest and his sons, it begs the question, where did it go wrong? Right? Where did it go wrong from Eli to his sons? And we should ask ourselves the question, how do we pass on our faith without passing on our failures to our children? How do we pass on our faith without passing on our failures? Well, breaking news, we can't. We can't pass on our faith without passing on our failures We will fail in more ways than one, in more ways than we'll ever realize we will pass on our failures. That's why the gospel, the good news, should always produce confession and repentance on our part as parents. Actually, as we get to chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, we see that even Samuel struggled with his sons. Verse 1 of chapter 8 says, Yet Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So the entire book is named after the guy whose sons failed in this. So I want to remember that I think one thing we miss as we're parenting, as, we, as we're trying to teach the younger generation, a core part of passing on our faith is confessing our failures to our, our kids. A part of passing on your faith to your children is confessing your sin to them, showing them your great need for grace and the great Savior that we have in Christ. You know, as a young person, I can think back to, to, to growing up and there were moments and it greatly impacted me as I considered if I was really going to own the faith for myself and assessing if I was going to be a Christian, a a real believer, it really greatly affected me when I had moments where I saw my parents confess sin to me with tears in their eyes. Because as a a kid, you see that as, this is real. They're not joking around. This is not fake. They are not being hypocritical. And if they need Jesus, I need Jesus. I need a Savior too. And so one of the most important ways you pass on your faith is being honest with your kids and confessing your sin to them. It's hard to do, isn't it? It's actually our sin pushes back against wanting to do that because it causes us to be humble and, and get low. Show them, look, we are, not, um, we are not amazing. We need the amazing Savior. So somewhere along the way, Eli and his two sons lost sight of God's marvelous grace. And they became prideful and dead to God's goodness. And they did not know the Lord, as we see in verse 12. So my application to you, if you're a parent, even if you're in in this church and you teach young kids and you're around younger kids, confess your sin to them. In wise ways, right, with wisdom. But as the Spirit leads, tell them why you need Jesus. Don't always just tell them why they need Jesus. Tell them why you need Jesus too. The gospel, friends, allows us to be weak and vulnerable. And so that's the first theme we see in this, is that the sins of our sons, what do we do with that? 
The second is the swift hand of judgment. We see that this is not going to go well for Eli and his sons. This is not going to go well. We're going to jump down to verse 22, and then we'll head back to some other passages after that. But verse 22, we see this. um, Eli was very old. Uh, The the men had laid with the women at at the temple Uh, entrance to the tent of meeting. And then he said to them, verse 23, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? They would not listen to his voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So they wouldn't listen to the voice of their father. What do we make of Eli's warning to the sons? What do we make of that? He certainly does warn them. He says, this is not good what you're doing. But you'd think he'd been a little bit more firmer. He, he could have removed them from their office. He could have done something about it, but he didn't. And we'll see what he receives from the Lord later. But he says this, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. If someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? So as you think about the, the response as to what's going to happen to, to Hophni and Phinehas, is God overreacting here? Why was their sin here so bad? I mean, come on, God. They're just, they're just taking a little extra meat. Well, what's the problem? What the problem is, is they were treating God's grace as something totally insignificant. The sacrificial system was a gracious act of God. I think we tend to think of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all these laws as sort of just more rules that we have to keep. And we forget that the whole reason there's these rules and these sacrificial laws is so that the people can be forgiven of their sins, is so that God can commune with a sinful people, that he can be gracious to them. The whole system was based on grace, and forgiveness. And that is why their sin is so bad, is that they are rejecting the grace of God. It's bad enough to reject God. It's worse to reject His grace and His forgiveness. It's worse if you hear the good news of the gospel and say, no, that's not for me. That's a worse sin. And so what Eli is really referring to is that this unintentional sin versus intentional sin. This, this fact that they were aware of the word of God, the promises of God, and the sacrifices that pointed to their need for forgiveness, and they were intentionally denying it, pushing it away. And as we read in James 3.1, if you're a teacher or a leader in Israel, you will be judged, especially with greater strictness. And in the Old Testament especially, sin involving holy things, being around the Ark of the Covenant, in the temple, always dealt, God always dealt with that kind of sin more swiftly and unmercifully. Because you were in the presence of the Lord. And so in verse 25, we read what will be the outcome of their life. It says, But they didn't listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Yikes! They didn't listen because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Don't flip that around and say, it was the will of the Lord to put them to death because they wouldn't listen. 
No, they were being, they were experiencing judgment right then and there. They could not change their hearts because God had decided to put them to death. Some have become so settled and hardened in their sin that God gives no opportunity to repent. Their unrepentance becomes the judgment of God upon them. We read about this in Romans 1. For three times, Paul says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. In verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. That is a judgment in real time upon unbelief. That, that we continue in unbelief so long that we cannot change. We can't change. Now, we as prayer, prayerful people, when we see people in sin, we can continue to pray for them. And we should still pray for people who are in sin. But this is a judgment that God can do upon a sinner. And it's frightful. So we hear that, and then we see that Eli hears from a man of God. Verse 27, there came a man of God to Eli. So we don't know who this man of God is. All we do know is that he's a prophet. He's a prophet who comes with God's words. So who is him? We don't know who he is, but he was a prophet. And he says this to Eli. He says, did I indeed, he's, no, he's speaking God's word, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? So who's the father he's speaking of? This is Eli's ancestor Aaron, right? who was the priest that he chose, that God chose to be the priest. And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up before my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded from my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourself on the choicest parts of every offering of my people of Israel? So we see what Eli's done, right? He's now honoring his sons above God. He's taking part. He's complicit in what God is doing or in what, what his sons are doing. And so this is a declaration of judgment against the house of Eli. And so it's also a prophecy that the priesthood would end at Shiloh and it would begin uh, with another priest that we'll read about uh, with Solomon, who's Solomon who puts a new priest under the line of uh, Zadok. So that is the, the prophecy of this new priest that would come and this judgment that would fall on the house of Eli. Why? Because he honored his kids, his, his sons, instead of God. And he didn't remove them from their office when he should have. He went right along with it. So Eli will also experience this judgment and on his house. Well, it's a lot of bad news in this passage, right? But where's the good news? Where do we see God at work? What do we see him doing? We see in the third major theme of this passage, the slow and steady hand of grace. The slow and steady hand of grace. The first thing you should notice throughout this passage is God's provision of new leadership with Samuel. And interspersed throughout this passage are little mentionings of Samuel, that he's growing, that he's serving. Look at verse 18 
with me. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Verse 21, indeed the Lord visited Hannah, uh, and skipping down, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Go to verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. And I didn't read this, but go to verse 1 of chapter 3, a concluding statement on this whole section. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. So here we get these little uh, pepperings of Samuel was doing this, Samuel was doing that. He's growing, he's maturing, he's learning. Dale Ralph Davis says, These brief Samuel notes are noteworthy. They tell us that Yahweh is already at work providing for new godly leadership for the people. There are no slogans, no campaigns, no speeches. It's all very quiet. Growth seldom makes noise. And Yahweh is growing his new leader. All Israel suffered under the arrogant, cynical, immoral priesthood, clergy who savored prime cuts over teaching godliness who much preferred having a woman in bed than interceding for Yahweh's flock. It must have seemed to many like there was no hope of improvement, no exit from the night. But in the middle of it all, God keeps whispering, don't forget Samuel. See how Samuel is serving. That is Yahweh's reminder. That's his manner, quietly providing for the next moment, even in the middle of the darkest moment. So this is a dark period in Israel's history. But look how God is moving. Look how he's working. It reminds me when Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts off as one of the smallest seeds, and it grows into the, one of the larger plants in the garden. But it goes quietly. It moves quietly. The leaven that works into the dough moves quietly, but then it leavens the whole loaf. That is what the kingdom of God is like. That how, that's how God's grace works. Slowly, but surely, and quietly, as he works salvation for his people. I wanted to read this short illustration from Dale Ralph Davis. He says, several years ago in a ministry journal, it included a story about a B-17 bombing run over a German city during World War II. Nazi anti-aircraft flak hit the gas tanks of the bomber, but there was no explosion. The morning after the raid, the pilot went down to ask the crew chief for the shell that had hit the gas tank. He wanted it for a souvenir. And the crew chief indicated that there were 11 unexploded shells in the the gas tank. And the shells had been sent to the armorers to be diffused, and and then intelligence had picked them up. The armorers had found that the shells contained no explosive charge. They were empty. All but one. It contained a rolled-up note, written in Czech. Finally, intelligence found someone on the base who could read Czech. The translation, this is all we can do for you now. So there were these Czechs who were compelled to work in a munitions plant for the Nazi war effort. They didn't try to blow up the plant or assassinate Hitler. They simply didn't put charges in some of the shells they produced. It was all very quiet and unnoticed, but worked salvation All the the same. Such is frequently God's way for his people. Not all his work is noisy or dramatic. We may be tempted to conclude that he's abandoned us because we haven't ears to hear the silent manner of God's work. 
This is often Yahweh's way in redemptive history, and we should mark it. We will not become too discouraged over Hophni and Phinehas so long as we see little Samuel walking around Shiloh. As he's growing, as he's serving, that's the salvation that God is going to use. As these boisterous, arrogant, worthless priests are taking advantage of God's people, he's providing salvation in this boy who's going to serve faithfully in this tabernacle. So that's the first example of how we see this steady and slow hand of grace. We also see it again with Elkanah and Hannah as we get this last scene of them. In verse 18, we see Samuel's ministering before the Lord and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. And indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So we see that Eli blesses Elkanah and Hannah, and she receives five more children. Del Ralph Ralph Davis says, No sacrifice ever seems to impoverish one of Yahweh's servants. Hannah and her husband now disappear from our story, but they and their house full of noisy children should remain witnesses to us of the giving God. I like that he said that. No sacrifice ever seems to impoverish one of his servants. No sacrifice you ever make for God will, will, will impoverish you. He will bless you. When we sacrifice for God, he will be with you. He will be with you throughout your entire life, and you'll experience blessing. It reminds me of Jesus' words to Peter. In Matthew chapter 10, Peter began to say to him, Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you, Jesus. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake in the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers, sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So God will bless you. He won't always bless you in the way you can imagine or you think he'll bless you. You won't always experience success in the way that you would like to experience success, but he will be with you. And he was with Hannah and blessed her even more. The most important evidence of God's grace that we get in this this passage is in verse 35. At the end of this pronouncement of judgment against Eli and his house, We read from that prophet, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a short house and he'll go in and out before my anointed forever. You see, where Eli should have corrected, punished, and removed his sons from their office, he became complicit in their sin. But brothers and sisters, we're promised a faithful priest. A priest who comes into the temple and he sees the money changers and he overturns the tables and he is angry at the defilement of the temple. That he shows righteous anger for God's house. 
That is our faithful priest. He purifies the church. We read in that text in John 2 that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went to Jerusalem in the temple. He found people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, the money changers sitting there. And in making a whip of cords, he drives them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, overturns their tables. And he told them who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And he answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they think he's talking about the physical temple. They think it's taken 46 years to build this temple, they tell him. But as we read from John's hand, he was talking about the temple of his body that his body would be knocked down and destroyed, but be raised again. And so we have a a high priest who not only purifies the church, gets rid of the evil, gets rid of the, 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 the sinful, worthless leaders, but he also is punished and killed and sacrificed in our place. That he allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be spilled so that you and I could be saved from the due penalty of our sins that he took upon himself our punishment. And he's also our priest in the sense that he can sympathize with our weaknesses, that he was made like us in every way, that he, you know, all the struggles we have as humans, right? All the, all the frailty, all the weakness, all the things you wish you could change and overcome but, but can't, all the limits that you have as a human, he put on that same body, that body just like ours. And he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was made like us in every way except for sin. And as I read earlier in the service from Hebrews 4, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. See, because Jesus knows our frame, he knows our weaknesses, yet never faltered, never sinned, we can go to him confidently. We can go to the throne of grace. And an interesting last prophecy at the end of verse 36, as we turn and think about what he offers us at the Lord's table, we read this, And everyone who is left in your house, Eli shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I might eat a morsel of bread. This is the priest who provides his body as bread and his blood as drink. Something tangible, something we can taste, something that is nourishing to us, that builds our faith. This meal that we're going to partake here in a few minutes is not to uh, build up our, uh, nourish our bodies as it is to nourish our faith. And that he is this great priest. That when people come looking for bread in the midst of a famine, they come and they find it in him, in Christ. Outside of Jesus, there is no nourishment for your soul. There is no other place you can turn to find forgiveness, and nourishment. We must come to the table. We must come to Jesus. 
and find that nourishment. Receive God's blessing upon you this day. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.